Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, on the show, many times we've discussed what we can call the issue of CO2's influence on climate. And in a sense, that's frustrating because that's such a dominant topic in today's discussion of energy and environmental issues, which I think we've observed it, it shouldn't be. That is, there's not some catastrophic influence. There's some sort of mild influence and is not it is not at all a priority uh, to significantly reduce or even reduce and in fact in the sense that it's a priority to increase energy production and consumption it's a priority as a byproduct to increase the amount of co2 in the atmosphere now if this is your first time listening to the show that may sound jarring so Feel free to read the moral case for fossil fuels to, to get my full position on that or, or listen to some of the other shows that have to do with climate science. So that said, I have not been super keen on having more and more climate guests, but recently, Stefan Han, my colleague at Center for Industrial Progress, highly recommended a presentation by someone named Dr. Pat Frank, who is a member of the scientific staff at the Slack uh, National National Accelerator Laboratory at Stanford, which is a very prestigious facility. Not that that proves anything that is prestigious, but in any case, uh, Stefan said this this presentation is really fascinating on what's wrong with climate models, or at least one key thing that's wrong with them. And I listened to it, and I thought this guy was really fascinating, really independent thinker, really clear explainer. So I thought, all right, we're going to do another climate show. So today we are going to do another climate show with Pat Frank of uh, the Slack National Accelerator Laboratory at Stanford. That's fun to say. Um, But let's just, I'll just tell you in advance, I've already done the interview. This is definitely, in my view, one of the best Power Hour guests we've ever had. I think this is a a really fascinating individual. And in my uh, sort of, in, in my analysis not being an expert in all of these topics but a, a really really clear thinker so I'll say a little bit more about that at the close of the program but get ready you're gonna learn some really fascinating stuff some of it will be horrifying about the nature of climate models and also he has probably the best explanation I've ever heard of how heat trapping works in the atmosphere so anytime you can get something like that it's worth a listen so Stay tuned. We will be back with Pat Frank on the other side. Power Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Dr. Pat Frank, a member of the scientific staff at the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory. Pat, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks for having me on, Alex. I'm really glad to be here. 
All right. Well, I've, I've started consuming your various articles recently. I was introduced to you I, uh, by my colleague, Stefan Hen, who, among other things, is basically right about everything. And he <laughs> said, this, this guy is great. You need to have him on Power Hour. So I agreed even before I started consuming the material. And then I, I saw a recent lecture you gave at Doctors for Disaster Preparedness, which if anyone is wondering, probably has the best average quality of lecture of any conference that I've ever seen. Um, so I actually went through most of them last year, but I didn't, uh, they didn't send me an ad for this year. So I didn't end up buying yours, but they put them for free on YouTube. Anyway, you had a re some really fascinating things to say about climate modeling and the lack of accuracy of it. Some pretty strong claims that were very strongly supported but before we get into that, so that was my interest. I wanted to talk about climate modeling and, and the problems with it. Uh, but how did you get interested in this? Your, your background is in chemistry, right? That's right. Um, my interest actually stems from uh, 2001 when the third uh, IPCC assessment report came out. And I got very, very tired very quickly of all of the accusatory polemics that accompanied it. And uh, decided finally to read the primary literature and find out for myself what was going on without reference to newspaper articles. So I started doing that. And um, it, it's you know a bit confusing at first to jump into a whole scientific topic uh, from first principles. But um, eventually I ran into an article that was written in 2001 by Willie Soon and Sally Belyunis and uh, several other author authors about the uncertainties in climate models that, and the errors that climate models make. And they turned out to be huge errors. And I realized immediately on reading that article that the IPCC and the climate modelers couldn't possibly know what they were claiming to know. And um, that's essentially what catalyzed my entire further interest in this whole problem. Um, the fact that uh, that things were being said which which uh, were being said certainly with certainty that just couldn't be known and one thing led to another and uh here i am today all right yeah uh you know i well, i don't know what they would, would call you but certainly some form of heretic uh yeah well you know it's, it was really interesting because um in any properly functioning science the paper with Willie Soon and Sally Bellion is the one they wrote, would have put an end to all of the modeling speculation, but it didn't. Uh, it just went on. And um, really what motivated me to pursue it after that was I could see that science was really being subverted in that field. And I have an extremely strong affinity for science. I, I feel like it's, I, I think that it's given us everything of value that we have. And I didn't want to see it subverted and polluted that way. Uh, so that's really what motivated me to carry on to the error analysis that I ended up doing and that we'll be talking about today. All right, great. So we're going to talk about something that is is claimed uh, in terms of the knowledge of, of climate models and the predictions that they make with a lot of certainty or at least a lot of publicized certainty. But let's start out with with what is known uh, in the field, or at least what I think is known. So let's, let's start off with the greenhouse effect, which we've discussed a bit on this show, but I think is always worth, uh, revisiting. Um, what is the nature of the greenhouse effect and what is the magnitude of the greenhouse effect? This is just pre, you know, CO2 emissions, let's say pre 1900. Right. Well, the, the usual way that that's discussed is in terms of the, uh, radiant temperature of the earth about a hundred miles up. And the surface temperature of Earth down here where we all live, 
And that difference is about 33 degrees Celsius, which is, you know, close to 50 or so uh, Fahrenheit um, difference in temperature. And that difference between our radiant temperature and our ground temperature is due to the greenhouse effect. Uh, most of that effect is due to the warmth induced by water vapor, but some of it is probably by other gases, including carbon dioxide. So those, those numbers are known pretty well. Some people dispute them. Some people dispute that interpretation. But the fact remains that the radiant temperature of Earth up there and the warm temperature down here is quite a bit different. And it's due to the, whatever greenhouse effect there is. So it needs to be explained. I mean, there, there's obviously some mechanism that would need to be expla explained that temperature differential. Yes, and it mostly is understood in terms of water vapor and the absorption of um, the radiant uh, energy that's coming up from the surface of the Earth. Essentially, the, the way it works is the, the sun shines down, the ground warms up, and re-radiates thermal temperature, thermal radiation, which... Uh, warms up the atmosphere down here at the ground, which is why the temperature is different down here than it is up there. Uh, and carbon dioxide in particular traps some of that radiation and converts it into thermal energy and dumps that thermal energy into the atmosphere. And that's well understood. That's radiation physics. Um, and it does contribute what's called kinetic energy to the uh, atmospheric gases, mostly nitrogen and oxygen. Um, so uh, that's the source of the uh, global warming uh, that's, that, that is produced by these models as a consequence of uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Okay, here's a, here's a naive question that I don't think that most people have any clue what the answer is to. So often, you know, the uh, greenhouse effect is described as, as a blanket, which I think is a problematic idea. But, you know, part of the idea of that is just that uh, the people have is it's just, you know, you're going to be under it and it's going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And yet, part of what's happening with uh, you know the you know the radiation hitting the Earth and bouncing off, and some of it being trapped, is eventually it escapes right. the atmosphere. It doesn't stay there forever, and then just get because otherwise, no matter what, whether we added anything or not, we would just get hotter and hotter and hotter forever. So how does right. how does that work? Um, there's actually a kind of a better analogy than the blanket. Um, suppose you put a dam across a river, and the water piles up behind the river. And the pressure at the bottom of the dam will increase as the water piles up. And so even though the flow of the river isn't changed, with a dam there, you get higher pressure where the dam is. And so carbon dioxide and the greenhouse effect and so on are kind of like that dam. And the water flowing down the river is like the sunlight coming in. And that doesn't change. But if you build the dam up higher, um, then the depth of the water will increase and the pressure at the bottom will also increase even though the flow is the same. And eventually if the dam fills up then the water flows over the top and escapes at the same rate it was escaping before but depending upon the height of the dam the pressure at the very bottom increases or decreases if you lower the dam. So that pressure is like air temperature and so carbon dioxide according to climate models is like making the dam higher and increasing the pressure or the temperature as a consequence. So I, I, that's kind of a clearer analogy than a blanket. Um, and it would be true, uh, except that the, uh, the dam is a clever dam, and it has ways of regulating the water pressure behind it. <laughs> and that's the Earth's climate. Um, the, the climate can adjust itself, and um, we could talk about that a little later, but a lot of that is left out of the climate models because it's not understood well. Um, 
and so it doesn't show up in their predictions. But so does it automate? So you know, with, with the dam analogy, or, or just the actual reality of it, at some point the energy always escapes. Is that right? It always escapes, and the amount of escaping energy is always the same. Um, it doesn't matter whether there's carbon dioxide present or not present. The um, the energy that comes in equals the energy that goes out, always. That's really important. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. You know, and, and it's like the dam. You know, if you if you slow the energy going out, it will essentially push harder until it eventually gets out at the same rate. Um, and um, but you know, it's it's the, the dam analogy is actually a pretty good analogy for that. And and pressure versus temperature. Yeah, I guess the way people think of it is, is you know, this idea of, okay, the, let's see, the, um, what is it, you know, the infrared light hits the earth, it bounces off the CO2, and then it just bounces back, and then why doesn't it just bounce off the CO2 and bounce back, and like, forever? Yeah, well, it's, it's mostly, it's, it's more complicated than that, of course, as usual, but um, eventually it bounces out, right? It, 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 the, the radiant energy that comes up from the surface of the earth, it's, it's, Short wave that comes down and long wave that goes up. Long wave energy we feel as thermal energy as heat, and um, it does bounce around, but eventually it escapes, and it, it has to escape at the same rate it always did, um, and, it, and and so it does. So it just lasts longer in the system. It kind of like is, it lasts longer in the system. Yeah. It's amazing to me this editorial comment. It's just amazing to me how nobody ever explains these things, like. You know, you, this idea, well, climate change is real. You know, this is the level of sophistication we get as an explanation. But nobody feels the need to, they, someone would hear you or hear about you and say, oh, it's a climate denier or something like that. But there's just no explanation of causality in this debate, which I think if there was, it would, it's just kind of like the logarithmic nature of, of the greenhouse effect. That's not something that would be convenient if you want people to think that the climate is spiraling out of control. Um, that, that's certainly true. Um, and, you know, 99% of the debate is political, which uh, means that science is, isn't discussed anyway. So I, I think that that's part of the problem that you're describing there. Okay, so we have this, uh, uh, this effect that, you know, is a, is a fundamental thing that's necessary for life because we definitely don't want to be uh, the temperature way up high. Yeah. That wouldn't be very conducive. <laughs> To our no. lives, uh, then. So you, you know, the stat you gave was uh, in one of your articles was 342 watts per meter square. So that's right. that's the right. So that's, you know, so and that's that's watts like we think of watt. You know, it's a rate, um, just like we think of in, uh, in you know, in a light bulb or anything else. It's it's that kind of thing. It's power. Yeah, yeah, um, it's power. And so then, what what about the nature of the magnitude of the greenhouse effect with the CO2 emissions we've put in the air so far. So we're at about you know, 0.04%, 400 parts per million. What's, so there's 342. Absent us, what have we added? Uh, since 1900 or so, the uh, total watts per square meter that we've added is about 2.8 or so. So, so just on that face, I mean, uh, you can't know without context, but that, it doesn't seem huge. It doesn't seem like... 342 more. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's not. And, you know, you, you're raising a very good point because one of the really early arguments that people were making was that the increase in forcing that the CO2 emissions are causing is like adding a light bulb of, uh, you know, one or two watts every square meter on Earth. And that sounds like a lot. 
but uh, what, you, what you're really doing is you're adding uh, one more to 340 that are already there. So you're going from 340 to 341. And that's a much better uh, um, analogy or vision for the change that we've made. It's, it's a very small percentage. So you mentioned the issue of uh, forcings. Two, two concepts we hear whenever people give any kind of explanation of this kind of thing are forcings and feedbacks. So what are those and how do they relate to these numbers? Uh, typically the difference between a forcing and a feedback is that a feedback is something that Earth, ter the terrestrial climate does itself in response to its own variations. So, for example, um, if the ocean becomes warmer from some oscillation, then uh, cloudiness might increase, and that would be a feedback if the ocean warming caused the increased cloudiness. Um, forcing is something that's external to the climate, that impacts the climate. So, um, a, a Pinatubo explosion, for example, a volcanic explosion that puts extra aerosols in the air for a while might be called a forcing because it's external to the ordinary operations of the climate. Um, both of them are expressed in terms of watts per square meter. So forcing is accuracy, forcing is like an external stimulus and feedback is like an internal response? Correct. That's, that's, succinctly, that's, that's correct. Uh, so, but how are f feedbacks, I mean, so forcings I can see expressed in terms of watts uh, per meter squared, uh, but if, if feedbacks involve all these, these complex dynamics within a climate, how are they always expressed in terms of watts per meter squared? Well, they have to have an impact on the way that energy is distributed uh, within the climate system. And that energy is always uh, expressed in terms of, of the, the same units, watts per square meter. So, for example, clouds uh, have um, a couple of effects, right? The tops of the clouds can reflect back the sunlight, and the bottoms of the clouds can reflect some of the energy that's coming up from the surface of the Earth back down. And those um, effects... Um, are described in terms of the watts per, squeeter, per meter squared, sorry, that uh, they have on the total flux of energy within the climate. So if the cloudiness changes, then perhaps its screening effect changes and the watts per square meter that's in the atmosphere, the thermal energy of the atmosphere changes as a consequence. So er everything is expressed in, term, in those terms. Just to go back to the earlier point, it's so it's always, though, it's the same amount of energy coming in and going out. It's just how long it stays in the system, and then these various things are influencing that. Is that accurate? That's, that's, pretty good. that's, that's a, a good uh, summary. Um, typically, the energy that's available inside the terrestrial climate is distributed among all the different climate modes. It's into the atmosphere, it's into the oceans, it's into the ice fields, it's into the clouds. All this energy is distributed in, in different ways, and those ways can change. And when they, they change, um, the climate can change, even though the total amount of energy doesn't change. So, uh, so, so you're correct, yes. <laughs> I just, I, part of the reason I say this is because I think there's this idea of aggregation, um, which may have certain kind of applicability in certain contexts, I don't know, in terms of the ocean absorbing things and then delivering it back a long time in the future. I don't, I don't know about that, but I think there's just this idea that sort of there's this, there's this pool, pool is the wrong analogy, but there's, the, there's this concentration of heat 
that's just building up and building up and building up and it's sort of here eternally and we just keep adding more to it versus just you know, there's this constant flow of energy in and out and we're you know as you said with the dam we're sort of uh slowing it down a little bit so that at any given time there's more heat but it's it's one seems much less alarming uh than the other yeah um it's it's difficult to actually, you know, to say these things in ways that uh, everybody will understand. But um, the the climate, the, the the energy balance is always going to be present. The amount of energy going in and the amount of energy going out, and what everybody is interested in is how it distributes itself. And uh, the the oceans warming up, um, they can warm up for for a variety of different causes, for different reasons, none of which might have anything to do with increases in the total energy that's coming into the system. Um, you can think about the different energy or the different climate modes as a bunch of coupled oscillators, like tuning forks that are connected to one another. And through their connections, they can swap vibrational energy back and forth. And in fact, they do. That's a good first-year physics experiment to show how coupled oscillators transfer energy back and forth among themselves. So if you apply that analogy to the climate, then you realize that uh, you can have ocean warming without any increase in energy in the system, um, and it just has to be made up as a consequence of some oscillation in the ocean or some transfer of energy within the climate system that may not have anything at all to do with an increase of greenhouse gases or a change in the amount of energy the sun is putting in to the system. Um, Dick Lindzen pointed this out probably 20 years ago, and it's fallen on deaf ears ever since. <laughs> so that's unfortunately true of many things that he has said. Uh, okay, so we've got forcings and feedbacks. Now we're going to get into uh, the issue that's been raised in several of your articles and, and that talk I mentioned, which is these GCMs, so general, gen, general circulation models. What are these and how do they... How are they supposed to, anyway, predict the future of climate? Well, general circulation models are um, essentially, they're, they're supposed to be physical models that express the known physics of the climate. So um, they have a lot of physics in them, and, um, and they're written in computer code so that they can run on uh, mostly supercomputers these days in order to um, make predictions or projections about how the climate will behave under certain conditions. So there, there's a lot of physics in there, including the radiation physics of carbon dioxide and all the other gases. Uh, they include things like the rotation of the Earth and the angular momentum that, that imposes on the atmosphere and on the oceans. And uh, they try to include ocean currents and all the rest of it in terms of the validated physical theory. But... Um, so they're an expression of that, and I, let's, I'll, I'll stop there and let you ask questions about it. Okay. Well, if these were accurate, notice the beginning of that sentence, if these were accurate, what value could they provide? Well, they would provide uh, explanation and prediction, just like all other physical theories. You know, um, quantum mechanics is a, is a very accurate theory that predicts the behavior of atoms and molecules and even subatomic particles, and it does so in ways uh, that can be, uh, the predictions can be validated uh, by experiment. 
So the same would be true of the climate models. Um, there are computer models that, that of quantum mechanics that, that you can use to make predictions, and there are computer models of climate that you can use to make predictions. And the climate model prediction or, or climate models are the general circulation models. And if they were accurate, they would accurately predict how the climate behaved under various circumstances, including the circumstances that it exists under today. So we would know with a reasonable degree of accuracy what could be expected climate-wise from increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% of it to 0.04% of it. Correct. In a general sort of way, you could. Uh, okay. Well, we're, and I think the point you made about uh, quantum, I don't know if you said quantum physics or quantum mechanics. Quantum models, mechanics, yeah. Um, so it's important, I think, that there, that models can be very valuable if they're accurate, because I think sometimes people say, oh, well, models and computers, as if that's some some term of derision, but if we can model something, I mean, that that's amazing, right? In terms it, of, yeah. It is, and we, and we use those all the time to great benefit in science. Um, you know, uh, medical epidemiology, for example, models the, the spread of uh, epidemics, and they do a very good job of that. And if we didn't have those, we would have a really hard time um, fighting medical problems. Um, there are models of, of drug behavior and, uh, that are extremely valuable. Um, evolutionary biology has given us models of how drugs behave in, in, in biological systems. Extremely valuable, and they're very predictive. So, yes, models are extremely important, good physical models. Um, of course, you have astrological models, too, which are worthless, even though they have math in them. Uh, so you can have bad models as well. And they have to be evaluated by testing, against, testing their predictions against observables. So that would seem to be the, the fundamental standard, whether... You know, Feynman had that, I forget the exact quote, but basically if it conflicts with observation, then it's wrong. Uh, so that, that seemed to be a fundamental standard. I'm curious, in terms of the preconditions of, of constructing such a model, how frequently is it that the, the modelers have a very good understanding of the causality of the various parts of the system? Yeah, um, t typically a, a model is put together at some point when after a large amount of experimentation. The, the, uh, as you know, the method of science is reductionism, where you study the smallest things and learn in step by step by step, and those individual steps get put together into larger pictures, which get combined into ever larger pictures, and finally you have something where you have enough knowledge where you can make a general model. Um, and uh, that would be the case with climate models, except that, um, that the reductionist program has pretty much been abandoned. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yes, and, and they, I was just thinking on the, the last thing you said, I mean, it would seem completely the opposite because their whole thing is talking about, I mean, even the way they talk about climate, I think reifies various things. I mean, even the climate, I don't think is a helpful kind of uh, classification. And even, you know, they'll talk about a global temperature as a single thing, but it, it, it they seem to constantly be dealing with these these aggregates and then these these claims to, you know, if the Nobel Prize were sort of a, a consistently legitimate thing for like s discoveries worthy of 10 Nobel Prizes in terms of, you know, what they understand about the global climate system. Because they're, the, the basic premise of the public is is that, you know, we, these are just, you know, new, new age Einsteins 
who can just tell us exactly what's going to happen in 100 years. And thus, any derivative study that comes from their models is considered just something you can cite as, as certain a fact as you could that I have a water bottle in front of me. Yes, yeah, it's, it, the, there is a, a lot of uh, certainty that's applied to those model projections that they do not deserve. Um, Willie Soon calls it, I, I don't know if this is appropriate for the program or not, but he calls it garbage in, gospel out. And uh, there's a lot of truth to that, the way that people uh, react in terms of those projections, yes. Yeah, garbage in, gospel out, although it doesn't quite c capture the the contamination of the garbage <laughs> by <laughs> yeah, the process. True. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're going to go to next with, with what we've had so far as I think a great foundation. Um, so what is the accuracy of these? And one, one thing that you've discussed and that we'll discuss is, is how people equate accuracy with those, you know, if, if anyone ever looks at these, you know, these different projections, they'll have, they'll have like some line, you know, some trend line, or I don't know exactly what it's called, going through the center, right. and there will be some seemingly like margin of error and you kind of think, oh, well, at least we know it within those terms. And so I know you are going to dispute that a lot. But let's just start off with what is the actual accuracy of these? Because at the end of the day, what we want to know is, okay, what's, you know, given the current system, what can we expect to happen? And then given these forcings, what can we expect to happen? So what is the physical accuracy of these? And I guess that includes how do you assess that? Right. And that's what really what I spent all of my time trying to figure out, uh, both an approach to that and then what the meaning of it is afterwards. Um, something to know about climate models, for example, is that they are tuned, tuned, which means that they're adjusted to give um, certain answers which are known to be correct, such as how much energy is leaving the Earth uh, back into space. Um, and when uh, climate models are used to predict temperature, for example. They do an extremely poor job to predict precipitation, snow and rain. And if they're adjusted to pre predict pre precipitation, they do a really poor job predicting temperature. So um, that should be a, a warning sign that your model doesn't have the correct theory in it and that it's not really giving you accurate results. Uh, so it's important to know that right at the start where you talk about the accuracy of, of climate models. So, so just, to, just to make sure I understand, so that if, it's, if it's missing something like that, which is a really big deal, then it, the mechanics of what, of it, you know, the, the causality that, is, that the model is based on is not right. Because if, if the, the model is presumably saying, here's how all these dynamics interact, and therefore, you know, among other things, we can spit out this uh, claim about temperature. But if those underlying dynamics are clearly not correct, then how could it spin out an accurate claim about temperature? That's exactly right. Um, and typically the accuracy is, uh, is um, evaluated in these models by seeing how well it predicts, uh, it spits out the temperatures of the past, which are reasonably well known. And then it, if it does that, it's supposed that it can therefore accurately spit out a temperature of the future. And that's a, a false equation, but it's one that's applied um, universally in climate modeling. Uh, and, you know, there's another point that you've raised that's implicit in, in what you've said, and that is that accuracy is only um, perceptible in a model prediction if it's a, a single unique prediction. Uh, if there are 
uh, other possibilities for the same observable. It doesn't matter which, which one of them your model predicts. If there are other ones that are also possible, you can't say whether the one you have is accurate or not. You can't even say whether it's correct or not, even if, if it predicts the right number, because there are other modes of causality that would also predict that number. So it's, it's necessary to get the causality down to a single cause before you can say whether the model is accurate or not. And climate models cannot do that. There are multiple possible ways that you can get the same answer given the um, amount of climate physics that's actually known. So one thing I've never really been clear on is they have these different runs of climate models. They talk about running them. But in my naivete, it just seems like, well, if you had a, even if it wasn't, obviously no one is expecting to be this exact perfect thing. But insofar as you, you know the mechanics well and you can make meaningful predictions, why isn't it just that you have a certain set of inputs and then you have one output? I mean, why, they, they run it multiple times. What are they running it with? Why are the answers so different? I, I just don't understand that. It's a really good question. And um, actually a guy named Jeffrey Keel addressed that question in 2007. Different models give different results for the same forcings. And they give... Um, but does the same model give different results? With the same forcings? No, it will give the same... If you started out exactly with the same conditions, it will give you exactly the same output. Um, but, uh, and, which it should, and, and you know, it's, it's obvious why it does, it's because it's starting out in the same place and it uses the same physical expressions and the same parameters to calculate, and so it will always calculate the same thing over and over again. Um, the, the, the problem with the different models, or with any given model, is that uh, physics is not well known, and so they use numbers, parameters, to... Um, approximate the effects of certain things, certain aspects of the cloudiness, certain aspects of the ocean, and so on and so forth. And those parameters are not well known. They're, they have large uncertainties associated with them. So if you adjust your parameters to give you a certain result, say the 20th century temperature trend, and then you want to use them to predict the 21st century, you can have a different set of parameters that can be adjusted, the same set of parameters adjusted to different levels within their uncertainty bands that will also give you the same temperature trend for the 20th century but give you a different temperature trend for the 21st century. So that's why you get different um, runs from the same model is that they've changed the parameter set and now the aerosol forcing is different and the clouds are behaving a little bit different and the, all these different parameters are set to different numbers within their uncertainty bounds and, and all of a sudden the, the run is different. Uh, okay, well, I, I interrupted when you mentioned that the different models have these very different results. And if you ever see one of these, there's there's uh, one of these in the moral case for fossil fuels, but uh, so you can check that out. I think it's in chapter four, just where you see these different models. It would seem to me as if, like, my guess is that in quantum mechanics, you don't have this phenomenon where you have, like, models of, you know, predicting, and then you have 12 different models, and they have these vastly different results and then you average them all together. That doesn't seem like a model that has a, or a set of models that's based on a clear causal understanding. You're correct. Uh, and in, in, um, in quantum mechanics, there, uh, there is uncertainty uh, because calculating something is different from, um, actually calculating something is different from generally knowing how to calculate something because when you put in the real world, uh, it gets very complicated. 
Um, so there is uncertainty in quantum mechanical calculations, and um, different ways that the theory is expressed can give you somewhat different results. But they're nowhere near as different as the variations you get in climate models when you put in these different parameters. There you get changes by a factor of two or five and large variations in the projected temperature trends, for example. Um, climate models can't even predict the unperturbed temperature of Earth as opposed as compared to the temperature the the um, perturbed temperature. If you try and calculate a baseline temperature of Earth using different climate models, some will start some will be twelve degrees, some will be eighteen degrees uh, Celsius, <clears throat> and so there's a large variation just in the baseline temperature, no matter just the project, projected temperature. So to ask it directly, what is the physical accuracy? Of the climate models, um, it's very, 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 very poor. It, um, I, I developed this method of propagating error through the uh, climate models. And just to give you an example, I used the cloud error, the average cloud error made by the most advanced climate models, uh, which is four watts per is square. This, is it? Is this admitted by the models or by the modelers? Yes, it is. It's in, it's in the literature. People test the models against observables. And they find out how much variation there is among the model predictions, and they can uh, estimate an error um, that the models make relative to known um, um, observed temperatures, say, or precipitation or whatever. And uh, that can be done. But after they do that, there's a, a um, kind of a folk idea amongst modelers that if you make a baseline projection and then you make a perturbed projection and you subtract the baseline from the perturbed that the difference is perfectly accurate. You get that over and over and over again. It's not true and it's never been properly tested, but it's, it allows modelers to assume and pr propose that their trend lines are true even if their uh, absolute temperatures or absolute climate projections are not true. So the, the accuracy of those models is very poor. Um, that the, uh, the change in forcing, for example, per year, which is never talked about, is about 35 milliwatts. That's about 0 0.035 watts per square meter. And the errors that are made, just the average error, uh, the annual error in cloud forcing, is 4 watts per square meter. I talk about this in my talk and in the paper that I'm trying to publish. Um, so the, 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 this basic error just in cloud forcing is 114 times larger than uh, the effect that they're trying to predict. Uh, so uh, the errors are large. And uh, Willie Soon, uh, the paper that I mentioned in the beginning with Willie Soon and Sally Bellunas, is still relevant today. Climate models make uh, probably an, an average total of about 150 watts per square meter error uh, the large errors are in the way the ocean is modeled. And those huge errors mean that the energy that's available to the climate is not properly distributed within a climate model. The climate models do not know how the energy is dispersed within the climate subsystems. And as a consequence, the climate dynamics are completely um, mistaken within the climate model. And as a consequence of that, their predictions are worthless. So to, let's talk about clouds and in particular, so that people can understand the just what's going on physically. So, what I forget the term you used was it margin of error, or what's what's the uh, term? the, the um, 
the average the average error, for example, the, uh, the the cloud forcing error. You mean? Yeah. So we. Yeah. So, so how, like, how, like, what does that mean in terms of the range of physical possibilities, or is that the right, right way to think of it? It is. Um, clouds have a general cooling effect on the climate, which means that their their shade against the sun is a little bit uh, contributes a little bit more to the climate than their reflection of heat back down to the surface. And the, the, the net effect of the clouds is cooling, and the cooling has been estimated to be worth about 25 watts per square meter. Uh, and it's a negative 25 watts, which is why it's cooling. And we had before, just to remind people, we had 2.8 watts per square meter in terms of what we've added in CO2. Correct. And, and the, so the clouds alone are 10 times larger than that. And in fact, it's been pointed out, and it was pointed out even about... 40 years ago, um, that a very small change in the tropical cloud cover and the tropical precipitation, the rain, would be enough to completely negate any temperature effect of carbon dioxide. A very small change, a couple of percent. Well, so, why can't people just say, oh, well, the clouds will be constant, so we, we're still adding these Hiroshima bombs that they like to measure them in, you know, to the atmosphere? That's exactly what they do. They make the clouds constant inside the climate models or try, uh, close to and see what the effect of an instantaneous change in carbon dioxide would do. That's where a lot of those temperature numbers come from. But, of course, um, nobody really knows how the clouds are going to react and uh, because the, the cloud physics is not well understood. Clouds are very poorly modeled in the climate models. And um, so it's all a supposition that... Uh, they will not adjust themselves in order to make the temperature effectively invisible. But they, or they could adjust themselves in the opposite way. They could do, um, but uh, the, you know the, the climate has been stable for a very long time now, and um, in the past, carbon dioxide has been very much higher than it is today, and there's there's never been any problem with with runaway climates or disasters or you know the death of uh, all life. None of that. So the, the empirical evidence is that carbon dioxide doesn't do a whole lot. Um, the entire alarm about carbon dioxide rests upon model projections, and the models do a very poor job of describing the climate. Is there any way to measure, uh, you know, cloud cover now versus 30 years ago? Yes, it's much. The satellites are better now, but they're they're they aren't good enough to give you a, um, a, an estimate of the cloud types and distribution um, <clears throat> that's sensitive enough to be able to say anything meaningful about the forcing effect of carbon dioxide. The, um, the errors in clouds are 10 to 20 percent for the types of clouds that are um, floating around up there. It's, it's a hard thing to do to measure clouds because clouds, for example, sit up on top of one another. So how do you know what's underneath the clouds you're actually seeing from 350 miles up? Uh, there are various layers of clouds. You don't know uh, where they are or what they are or what kind of clouds they are. Do they have a, a warming effect or a cooling effect? It's hard to see. So it would be a, a very expensive proposal. You'd probably have to send a lot of planes flying around to see what the cloud types are in order to get a good estimation for what the clouds are really doing up there um, uh, year by year. Well, and then that would emit too much CO2, so we can't... <laughs> I can't see that. That would be a problem, yeah. Okay, so I just want to make sure. So there's, there's, 
I could imagine. So there's one thing in terms of just not knowing what the clouds are going to do that we we wouldn't know in what you called the unperturbed system. That is where there's no human uh, forcing. But is the idea that that we can that we can expect it to be relatively constant, uh, you know, in a in a relatively constant system, and that we just have no and that these ranges, you know, these huge potential ranges that completely swamp uh, the energy coming in. Based on the CO two emissions, is it is it that the is it that we can't know the difference based on the change, or that the the change in CO two, or that just sort of clouds are crazy and we have no idea what they're going to do, no matter what. Um, we don't have a good idea about what clouds are going to do, um, and um, we don't also have a good idea to, of knowing what carbon dioxide is going to do either, as it turns out. The, um, in, the, in the absence of um, a good theoretical description of a system, you're kind of thrown back upon empirical uh, observations to see whether or not anything unusual is going on. And um, that's what we really face with the climate. The climate models cannot predict the effect of carbon dioxide. They cannot predict how the clouds are going to respond. They can't, predict, they can't say how the clouds are in an unperturbed climate either, or the ocean. Um, and so uh, the, the predictive possibilities, the explanatory possibilities, are just not present. And so in their absence, you look at um, past times and what happened then. And w when you do that, you see that uh, carbon dioxide changes have done virtually nothing. So it's, it's really wrong then. To, I feel like this is a mistake I've made and, and certainly the catastrophists have made. But just to act in any way like we really know what the net effect of a CO2 increase. So there's a standard kind of refrain, you know, of, of I believe in, and, and when I say standard, I mean sometimes I use it, but I think there is an equivocation. Uh, like, you know, I believe in mild warming, not runaway warming. Now I can say that about the state of the climate system, that is if, you know, insofar as any of these surface temperature things are remotely accurate, like we can observe that, certainly not a catastrophic warming. And I can say that in isolation, this has a warming influence, but I can't say causally that this amount of CO2 has definitely caused the mild warming in the climate. Is that right? Um, you, it's certainly true that, you, that one cannot say that CO2 has definitely caused the mild warming in, in the climate. Uh, the mild cooling in the climate during the Little Ice Age occurred without any change in carbon dioxide. You know, carbon dioxide didn't go down. So to, to cause that cooling. So uh, yes, you can't say that the carbon dioxide will cause has caused the warming that we've seen. The um, the entire warming claim about carbon dioxide rests strictly upon radiation physics. And in fact, if you go to the website of the American Physical Society or the website of the American Institute for Physics, you'll see uh, and you look at their climate area. You see a lot of stuff, a lot of calculations showing that radiation physics predicts that the atmosphere will get warmer with carbon dioxide. And that's as though radiation physics were an adequate theory of climate. But it's not, because climate has a lot more response channels than just getting warm when, um, when radiation levels uh, produce a little more heating. So um, the, whole, the whole story is... Um, kind of resting upon a leap of faith on the part of scientists, something they shouldn't do, from radiation physics 
to climate warming, and the entire intermediate steps are missing. So it isn't. It's not only not right to say that uh, the, the recent warming, is, you know, is known to be caused by carbon dioxide, but even to say that some of the recent warming is probably caused by carbon dioxide emissions, uh, there's no justification for that either. So that the real cautious, properly scientific point of view is we have absolutely no idea what's going on. The climate has warmed and cooled in the past without any changes at all from us or from changes in carbon dioxide or apparently in greenhouse gases. And the changes that we've seen are well within natural variability. And so as far as we can tell, nothing important is going on. In fact, the only important thing that's happened that we know about for sure from uh, carbon dioxide is the general ecological greening that we've seen on Earth uh, since about 1980 or so. Right. <laughs> Sorry uh, for the rant. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that was really good. So I want to talk about the, the, your, your claims about the degree of inaccuracy or unreliability, I'm not sure the right term, of these models because it will link to the talk and, and some of the articles. But you have these very striking images that basically say that, that like, you know, they have absolutely no clue what's going to happen. And there are these almost seemingly crazy things about like a plus or minus a hundred degree. Yeah. Uh, so what, what's, what's going on there? What, what did, what did you do to these, these models? So, so I did a very, very straightforward, um, error propagation. It's something that happens all the time uh, within properly functioning science where you have to find out whether or not you have any certainty in your results. So you propagate all the errors through the calculations that you do and you see whether the error is larger or smaller than the result that you're calculating. And we do that all the time uh, in science. And that's all I did with the climate models. And it, the, the difficult part was figuring out a, a method to do that because climate models are, are very complicated uh, beasts and propagating an error through the calculations that they do would be very difficult. So um, the 100 degrees that you mentioned in, uh, it comes from the skeptic article where I, uh, I plotted the uh, direct uh, consequences of the error propagation and that the true uncertainty is actually the square root of those numbers. So instead of 100 degrees, the, the, the real uncertainty would be plus or minus 10 degrees. Uh, that's how uncertainties are calculated when error is propagated. Um, it's the square root. So, um, but those, uh, those uncertainties are the true uncertainties. Uh, they're the true physical uncertainties. And physical uncertainty is something that you never, ever see in a climate model study. They never tell you the physical uncertainty. They only tell you the model variabilities, uh, which are those um, shaded regions that I talk about uh, both in my talk and in the skeptic article. Those uncertainties that they give are just statistical uncertainties that have nothing to do with physical uncertainty. Um, so they're so, so can you can you uh, elaborate on that? I think it's a really important distinction. Right, and so um, you have a model, and um, the parameters that are in it have a certain range of unknown. Say you know one plus or minus one. And you vary that one uh, up and down between the plus and the minus, and you get a variety of different projections as a consequence. The behavior of the model and the predictions of the climate change depending upon what setting you put for those parameters within their uncertainty bounds. And then you, you take the average of all of those, and the spread of the models is the uncertainty, and the average is the prediction. And that's typically what you see in a lot of these climate projections. 
but the spread of the models doesn't have anything to do with the um, accuracy of the prediction. The accuracy of the prediction is judged against the observables. Um, how well does it do when you actually know the answer? And is the answer that it gives um, a unique answer or is it one of a range of answers? And um, so propagating the uncertainties in these parameters, the plus one and the minus one about your um, parameter set, gives you an idea about whether or not the predictions that you're making are unique singular predictions or whether there's a huge range of predictions expressing the unknowns and the ignorance you have about the physics. And uh, that's what those plus or minus 10 degrees and plus or minus 14 degrees are. They represent the uh, inaccuracy due to the unknown physics of the climate that are just propagated through those predictions. Explain propagated. Uh, propagated means that um, you have a bunch of calculations uh, and you, give, you get one final result at the end, but each calculation has some error associated with it. And the error in calculation number one gets incorporated into calculation number two, where it uh, provides an uncertainty for that result. And calculation number two has its own error which adds to error number one, and calculation number three has its own error, which, which adds up to, with errors number one and two, and so it goes. And then more steps in your calculation that you have, the more the error adds up each calculational step, until finally at the end you can get very large uncertainties in the final result. And one of the whole uh, difficulties of doing the hard, gritty work of science is to lower the errors, the things that you don't know, in the calculations you're doing, so that when you propagate the errors through, you still end up with something that you have some knowledge about, and the errors are not much larger than the result that you've calculated. Uh, it's, it's really hard work to be able to do that, and any experimental scientist will tell you how hard it is to struggle with an instrument or to struggle with a system in order to remove all the errors so that you can get a result that you can trust. Uh, climate modelers haven't done that. Yeah, I don't think it would be very, uh, they would take more work than they're capable of, uh, of doing by a long shot. So well, let, me, no, well, okay. let me just say that, um, that um, we haven't talked about this, but I've been trying to publish a paper on this work for three years. And I've gone through a large number now of journals and reviews, and most of those reviews were by climate modelers. And I haven't found a single one of those reviewers who understood anything about error propagation which is a, a standard thing that um, chemists and physicists, undergraduates, learn in their first and second years. And climate modelers don't know anything about that. Not that I've seen in any of their reviews. So to make sure that we understand error propagation, so I think the, the idea is, so let's say, you know, we have, we're doing, dealing in increments of a year. Uh -huh. And there's a certain amount of uh, uncertainty about the impact of clouds. Right. So then there's a sort of a whole range of things within the top range of that. What, what's the number uh, per year? Oh, four watts per square meter. That's, that's the average. Uh, some climate modelers make as much as 11 watts per square meter per year error. Okay, so let's just say it was four. Yeah. Right? So then it would be like you'd have to be, it would be plus or minus four, right? And right. So, you, you know, you'd sort of be within that range. And so then at the, if you would then go to the four scenario, the next year it would be plus or minus four of that range. So then it would be, you know, just for that particular data point, it would be from eight to zero. And then if you went to the negative four, it would be from negative eight to zero. And then 
everywhere in between for the other data points. Is that right? Yeah, essentially every time you, the, the, the error comes from the model itself uh, because the model is making mistakes when it does calculations. So the four watts per square meter in the first year is, uh, is an error there and then you calculate the second year and that makes its own four watts per square meter error. But you've already had four watts per square meter error in the first year too, which propagates forward. And so uh, that error accumulates from year to year to year because the model is making a mistake every single time it does a calculation. And those, those errors in the calculation add up. And that's what propagation is. It add, it's, a, it's a way of using statistics to add up the physical errors in a way that gives you a good understanding of the reliability of the result that you get. So is it, is it accurate to describe it as compounding error as well? Yes, it is accurate to describe it that way. I mean, because I think that's more of the, the effect of it. I mean, so propagating sort of refers to what, you know, the, the sort of life story of the original error. And, of, and the succeeding error as well. Yes. Right, right. So it sort of pro so, propagates through. But so, sort of my perspective as the user is that I, at the end of the day, I have this whole compounded error. Yeah, which it's, is it's exactly right. It's like interest in a, in, a, um, in a bank account, right? The error compounds yearly and it gets, you get more and more and more money at the end. And it's the same way with error. It compounds yearly and you get more and more error at the end. Well, except in this case, I guess it would be the equivalent of, well, you could become a trillionaire or like destroy the whole world economy. Right. That's our model of the future. Yeah. That's Actually, how well this, we know it. This way, it's a, it's a mafia loan, right, where the interest gets more and more, and you get more and more in debt as the year goes on. Right. So this, this then, if somebody sees something like this, though, particularly if it's represented in terms of temperature, so I don't I think you mentioned, like, plus or minus 10 degrees, I think there's a natural tendency to look at this and say, oh, my gosh, look, it could get 10 degrees warmer, right, or it could get 10 degrees colder. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's not actually what's a, going on, right? That's, that's, no, that's, that's just how that's it shows how crazy the model is. Yes, it's not what's going on. Uh, uh, people make that mistake. It's a naive mistake. And climate modelers actually typically make that mistake where they interpret those uncertainties as actual temperatures. But, but they're not. They're reliability statistics. And when the, the um, uncertainty is that large, plus or minus 10 degrees, say, it just means that the temperature that's actually being calculated, say, three degrees warmer at the end of 100 years, plus or minus 10 degrees, it means that you actually have no idea what that temperature should be, that the climate is going to have some temperature, and you don't know what it is, because the uncertainty in the temperature is much, much larger than the actual calculation of the temperature 100 years on. So it's, it's a measure of uncertainty. It's not measure, it's, it doesn't say that the temperature could be 10 degrees warmer or cooler. It doesn't say that at all. It just says that the error is so large, the uncertainty is so large, we don't know anything about the temperature 100 years from now. I'm just trying to think, is there any context in which you can have this kind of propagated error but somehow know that it will... You know, that it'll be counteracted in some way? I mean, in a sense... Well, I guess maybe the model is just useless, but like I, I, I basically know it's not going to get 10 degrees warmer in the next or 10 degrees colder in the next 100 years. I mean, just sort of by... By intuition. Yeah. Um, but it, but the, the uncertainty doesn't say that it, it could possibly do that. It's just saying that, um, that the error, the uncertainties are so large that we don't know how much warmer or cooler it will be at the end of 100 years. So it is possible that errors cancel each other out and you accidentally get the right answer. But um, 
But even getting the right answer doesn't mean that the physics that you use to get that answer is correct. And that means that the answer, even if it is correct, that you find out later, um, is, has a huge uncertainty associated with it because the way that you calculated it is wrong. So it's, that's one of the hard lessons of science. You can get, accidentally get the right answer, but it doesn't mean that your calculation is correct or that you, your understanding is there. You just happen to get, you know, errors canceled each other out and you happen to get the right answer. But it, it really doesn't give you any deeper understanding. One issue I think you started to bring up before, and I think I interu interrupted it with a question, had to do with how to deal with, um, in, in finding these error issues, the, the complexity of the climate models, because these are things that are run on supercomputers. And I know you had what you call a passive model, which right. some people might criticize. So what, what is that, and why is it uh, a usable way of figuring out these errors? Yeah, um, it, it, that little model shows is able to reproduce uh, every single climate model projection I've tested it against where the models, are, the models themselves are faithful to the standard forcings. And um, as a consequence, it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that climate models just are linear propagation machines. They just linearly extrapolate greenhouse forcing into temperature. And that means they use a very simple algorithm, whatever it is, to calculate what the temperature would be uh, with carbon dioxide emission changes. And um, I'm able to show that climate models have done this since at least 1988 when Jim Hansen made his little uh, testimony before Congress all the way through uh, the present. Every climate model set that I've tested them against, um, I can reproduce with this uh, passive warming model, this little linear equation. And as a consequence, uh, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that climate models are linear machines then linear propagation of error is valid. And that's the whole center of the uh, analysis. I've given talks about this before audiences that have include physicists, and none of them have objected to that. Um, there's just no doubt that it's correct. Uh, and so the uncertainties that you calculate as a consequence by linearly propagating the error are true physical uncertainties of these climate models. And that means plus or minus 14 degrees or so after 100 years of uh, temperature projection, which means that nobody knows what those temperatures will be at all. And uh, the climate model predictions of unhealthy or catastrophic warming due to carbon dioxide emissions have no basis uh, in physical reliability. So did, did, that, did that answer yeah, your question? Yeah, definitely. So you, you've written this paper, which I, I heard on the talk and now I'm hearing... Uh, you've had a lot of difficulty getting published and yeah. you've indicated that you're, uh, to put it charitably, underwhelmed by the climate modelers in terms yeah. of their understanding I, of I'm what it means under, to be a good modeler. Let me say I'm also underwhelmed by the journal editors who have accepted um, objectively incompetent reviews in order to reject my manuscript. And that this has happened over and over again uh, with some of the best climate journals um, where the editors just uh, reject the paper on the basis of obviously incompetent reviews. Uh, and it, this plays into one of the reasons why I'm persisting in all of this. Usually you just go away. But um, I really feel like our – well, I understand that our entire civilization depends upon 
science and the insights that uh, science has given us. And a really contemporary example of that is that evolutionary biology has really shown us that we're one human family and that their genetic changes across races are smaller than the genetic differences inside races and that there's no scientific rational basis for racism. This comes right out of evolutionary biology and it's a huge gift to us, and uh, both to us uh, physically because of, of the improvements in medicine, but also in, in terms of our ethics. So everything of value comes from th that kind of thinking. And what I'm seeing in climate science is the systematic perversion and attack on that kind of thinking. And that has really powered my um, desire to do something about it, to rescue science from this really noxious and so far highly successful attack on its very basis, which is the analytical thinking and the care that goes into actually knowing something rather than just asserting something. How effective have you been with colleagues? You're obviously around a bunch of very bright people at Stanford. Yeah, not very effective. Why not? Um, that's a good question. And, I, I, you know, it's, it's been a big conundrum to me about why not. And I still don't have an answer. It's, it, people talk about um, grantsmanship and they're in it for the fame or in it for the money. Uh, I don't believe any of that. If there's a much deeper psychological problem going on. Um, I offered to give a seminar at Stanford, um, well, at, at Slack, about my work. And it was turned down because um, nobody wanted it to be getting out that Slack was entertaining climate deniers. And these are really smart people who turned me down. And, I, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a political fear there that somehow is changing the way people think. And the peculiar aspect of it is that if you have a very good scientific argument, you're invulnerable to criticism, uh, to at least to scientific crit criticism and rational criticism. You can be accused of all kinds of things, but it won't affect the argument. And somehow that vision, that understanding has been lost, and people are afraid, it seems to me, to proceed despite the fact that the, the argument is incontestable. But just on a, if you're talking to a colleague, just directly, or even, I don't know, the, the people, assuming they're not just hacks, yeah. hack bureaucrats, uh, what, I mean, what do they say? Do they have um, an argument? One of them has said, you know, uh, Pat, I'm not saying you're wrong, but no, 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 and he went away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like that. So it, it, uh, I used to be in, in email contact with, um, well, what was his name? Uh, he was a physicist from the University of Maryland, ex-president uh, of the American Physical Society. And he had a column that he published by email called What's New About Washington, D.C. And he would talk about science. And he was very acerbic. And um, I'll remember his name in a minute. Uh, but I, he was outspoken about, about global warming and uh, very critical of uh, you know, so-called climate deniers. And I contacted him by email and we had to talk about it and every time I tried to pin him down about it he would equivocate and uh, get start getting vague and he would I could never pin him down despite the fact that he was a really really smart physicist so I, I remain completely nonplussed by that whole thing I, I don't understand where the difficulty is it's some strange psychological thing it doesn't have anything to do with money it doesn't have anything to do with fame or grants um, this guy had was retired. He had no 
a dog in the fight, and still he was like that. So I, I don't understand it, and, and I've run into it over and over and over again. I think it's important that those explanations are insufficient, uh, which is something that if uh, people have heard n numerous power hours in the past where it's just suggested that it's all funding or it's all, you know, whatever. I think there are more powerful motives. I, 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 I certainly agree with you. There's some deep psychological thing going on that has not been touched yet. Um, so what's the, you know, besides winning world acclaim after this power hour comes out, what's the, <laughs> what's the next plan? Um, Let's see. Assuming that I, 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 I'm able to publish this paper, it's under review again for the sixth or seventh time, I forget now. Um, if, if that happens, then um, I hope there will be hell to pay as a consequence. I have a study that's about 95% complete on the global air temperature record, which we haven't talked about, but I've published on that as well. Of the uncertainty analysis within there that is being also completely ignored by the people in the field. Um, the, the systematic error in the temperature measurements. All those temperature numbers are accepted as though they were canonically true um, and that all the errors just evaporate away when you combine them together, but it, that's not true. And I've published some on that. I have another study that's almost done that's going to explode that whole thing um, if I can get one more data set. Um, and after that, if I get that one published, then I'm pretty much done with climate. I'll, I will have said everything that I want to say. Um, I, just to make one other point about that, uh, there are three parts to this whole global warming thing. There's the, the model part, which we've talked about at length here. There's the air temperature part, which I just mentioned. And there's the proxy paleo temperature reconstructions where people use tree rings and so on to reconstruct ancient temperatures. Um, that aspect, the third one, the tree ring business, there, there is no physical theory that will turn a tree ring into a temperature. There's no conversion factor. So all of those studies are using statistics to raise those tree ring trends into, uh, into the temperature measurement uh, series, and then they call them temperature. And it's the worst example of uh, false precision and pseudoscience ever. And uh, there's, there's nothing there that's scientific. Uh, and I've talked about that in a paper that I wrote uh, called um, Non-Science and Consensus Climatology. Uh, and I've talked about all three aspects and the false precision that's in the global air temperature models in the um, air temperature projections and in the um, paleo temperature reconstructions is enough to obviate any conclusions based on any of them. The entire field of consensus climatology has descended into pseudoscience. There isn't any of it that's defensible. And I, this is another part of the conundrum, why um, the American Physical Society, for example, or the National Academy of Sciences, has not been forthright about defending the integrity of science in the face of what's obviously an abuse. That's another part I don't understand. And maybe, maybe someday we'll be able to put our finger on that when people tell us what kind of thinking it was that led them into uh, such an abandonment of scientific integrity. So I, I I hope that's not too much to yeah uh, no that that's really important we'll we'll link uh, um, I've read part of the article that you just mentioned I haven't finished it yet but we'll certainly link to all of those articles my sense is that people do not like being told that they don't know nearly as much as they think they know 
particularly if their professional and social standing involves knowing a lot about things that are currently unknowable. Uh, that's certainly true, and it's, it's certainly true that if people paid attention to error the way they should be doing in that field, nobody would be left with anything to say. There would be no more grand sweeping pronouncements uh, or any of that, and so a lot of the fun would go out of it. And it, it could be that maybe that's just the whole psychological thing right there. But it, it really is true that if they paid attention to detail, uh, everything would evaporate away and they'd be left with nothing to say. You know, if, if Jim Hansen had really put proper error bars, physically good error bars around his projections in 1988 and presented them to Congress and said that, you know, it's going to be three degrees warmer plus or minus 15 degrees, <laughs> you know, where's, where, where's the alarm? So um, uh, th that's true of the entire field, um, the, the climate models, the air temperature projections, and the paleo temperature reconstructions. The true errors are so huge that there's no information in any of them. Well, it's always good to have a gadfly, even though sometimes they get forced to drink hemlock. But fortunately, <laughs> in the U.S. today, we're not quite at that point. No, they're trying. Uh, they're trying. Well, Pat, I really appreciate all the clarity you've given us today and also your bold work. And uh, I know we'll be able to publicize it at least a little bit and hopefully uh, a lot bit because I think this is one of those fundamental issues that if you're right and to the extent I can process it, you are, that there's just a, you know, a very deep fraud, intellectual fraud going on here in terms of what uh, people in this field claim to know versus what they actually know. Yeah, let's, let's just clarify that and say that it's a kind of innocent fraud, a pious fraud, as it were, not an intentional, I'm going to fool them all sort of fraud. Well, there's a certain kind of, I mean, at a certain point, there's an interesting set of distinctions about, you know, when somebody, you know, what the, the moral st status of pretense is. Yeah. Um, I could talk to you a little bit privately about things that I know about that might imply real intentional fraud, but I, I wouldn't want to say it for broadcast. Oh, well, you're going to, yeah, the, the listeners are now going to be very jealous and, and issue me death threats and, oh, yeah. unless, I, unless, unless I reveal it. Um, uh, but no, I, I, certainly, uh, I certainly believe that. In any case, there's a lot of uh, disingenuousness and you know, part of the responsibility of being in a field where you make where uh, you claim knowledge and, and cl certainly claim it publicly and certainly where you claim it has policy implications is you have an obligation to know uh, what you don't know. That's not the kind of thing to be right. loose about. It's, uh, it's never communicated what they don't know. I agree. And, and oftentimes deliberately so. All right. Well, thanks so much, Pat, for being on the show. And uh, We'll, we'll make some waves with this. Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate the um, opportunity to speak with you, and I appreciate your attention. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Pat. He does not like uh, being called complicated, prestigious things, which is, is a, a, always a good sign in my mind. So thanks to Pat for being on the show. Uh, we covered a lot. We went long. I thought it was totally worth it, though. So I won't say too much in closing except for one observation that I shared with uh, Eric Dennis yesterday, Eric Dennis, Senior Fellow at Center for Industrial Progress, for those who don't know or remember. Now, Eric has not heard this yet, so he, he doesn't necessarily endorse this, though I hope he does once, I, uh, once he hears the episode. But I was just saying that, you know, when I'm, I'm listening to different people, sometimes I'll get the sense that 
this person is a really good thinker. There's something I really like about this person's mind. And even if a lot of the specialized knowledge involved is not knowledge that I have in a complete way, in the same way I might about certain energy topics or certain philosophy topics, uh, I do... I get a sense, yeah, this this person is very likely to be right, and there's something I really like about it. And I realize there are at least two aspects of this, and both of these Pat exhibited. So one is the ability to state a very controversial conclusion in a very calm and independent and unselfconscious way. So that is saying something about these climate models do X and just saying it not in a hostile way or combative way, but just look, I have thought about this. I have looked at this. This is what I see. I'm not pretending that I see anything else. I'm not being combative. I'm just telling you uh, what I see and I welcome your commentary. And then the other aspect of that is is with that ability to state these, these independent radical conclusions, the willingness to explain them very calmly. Sometimes you see people with conclusions, and they may even be right, but there's some kind of hostility, or if you challenge them, they won't be quite clear uh, about it, or they're just kind of frustrated with people who disagree. And I found with in both of these cases, uh, Pat definitely just had a really clear controversial conclusion. He just stated it very forthrightly, and then he answered all questions. So if you have any more questions uh, for him, Uh, let us know. Uh, If I think they're interesting, I'll pass them on, hopefully get answers. But I just want to say I really appreciated that in addition to all the great content. So thanks again to Pat for being on the program. Thanks to you for listening and just to do our little wrap-up. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email support at industrialprogress.net. That's support at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to follow us if you want on Facebook, Twitter, there's the, uh, I guess I'm on Instagram as well as Alex Epstein 22, but there's the Alex Epstein account, the I Love Fossil Fuels account, the I Love Nuclear account, and the Center for Industrial Progress account at both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Lots going on. We'll probably update you more in a future episode, as I've been saying for the past several months, we're definitely not, and, and doing for the past several several months. We're definitely not having this weekly, but whenever we find a particularly interesting guest, uh, I'll make sure to have that person on. And at some point, we might go back to being weekly. We likely will, but right now there's a big project in the background that is taking a lot of my bandwidth, and I think you'll be really pleased with. Uh, I won't say more, except make sure that you're signed up for the newsletter. That's the most important thing. Industrialprogress.com, just in the upper right corner. Make sure we have your email. That way, no matter what, you will be up to date on everything, including Power Hour. All right, next time, whenever that is, we will be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.